out there, all, all around when you hear that deafening roar in the trees, that is just one big, loud cicada orgy. <laughs> I told you, that's, <laughs> mommy, what does the word orgy mean? No. Uh, <laughs> And so, but that's, that's why they're here. That's why they are out. That's why they're making noise. They're looking, they're looking for, for mates. They are getting busy. The birds and the bees have nothing on the cicadas. And so now you might think, you might think that this is all that the cicadas do, because this is really all that we see of them when they emerge every 17 years to have this big cicada sex party. Uh, but, but this is actually... Uh, just a very small part of their lives. You, you've probably heard this. You know, the news has been talking about cicadas for like weeks and months now. Uh, and this part out here that we see, this is so a small part of their life and not even the most important part of, of what they do. Cicadas spend 17 years, or at least our cicadas do, 17 years underground. they sipping on the juices that flow through the roots of the trees. They're growing and developing. Like They've got a whole life down there that we don't see, that we don't think about until you start to see those little holes in the ground and they start coming out. And it turns out they play a really crucial role in the health of ecosystems. They have this symbiotic relationship with trees. They're crucial to the health of forests. Like, cicadas do a lot of stuff that are, you know, they have lives unseen by us and purposes unknown by us that go far beyond just making cicada babies. And so if you think that that's all that the cicadas do, that's all that they're here for, um, you, you'd be very wrong. And yet, I don't think this is a mistake that we just make with the cicadas, thinking that it's all about just making the cicada babies. I think it's a mistake that we make with human beings, too. Because you see, our, our culture and this is not particularly unique to our culture, but our culture has taken the issue of sex and sexuality and so centered it that it is the very core of identity. It's purpose, it's meaning, it's, it's being, it's fulfillment, that our, our culture is just centered on sex. And of course, you can, you know, every TV show you watch, every, every storyline, it's, like, it's, it's all about this. And so, you know, we often lament that our culture is awash in sexuality, movies and music and clothes and everything. But, but the reason that our culture is so obsessed with sex the reason underneath the fact that it seems like that's everything on TV and all the music, it's because our culture thinks that this is what life is for, that this is our purpose, that this is, this is fulfillment, this is, this is the closest thing the world has to transcendence, finding your identity through sexual self-expression. And so because of that, because, because our world has centered this issue right at the core, that, that's, that's why it seems like we're so obsessed with it. But this is just as wrong when it comes to human beings as it is with the cicadas. The, the meaning and purpose of life, identity and fulfillment, is not found in sexuality. In sex. Sex is not the center. Jesus is the center. 
Let me say that again. Sex is not the center. Jesus is the center, which might sound like an obvious thing to say from the pulpit, but, but this, is, this is so true, so crucial. And meaning and purpose and identity and fulfillment is found in relation to him. And so, too, the meaning and purpose of our sexuality is found in him as well. And so, you know, if I'm um, just maybe a, a caveat here, because I, I, I realize, you know, if sex is, is not the center, uh, then what I'm actually, what I'm doing here today is actually something a little dangerous. Uh, I'm preaching an entire message on sex and sexuality, and, it, and in particular on the issue of homosexuality. Uh, and the reason for this is because, because if you were here last week, you know, in our series on 1 Corinthians, we're just walking through 1 Corinthians, and we've arrived at this issue in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. And I said last week, I said, I said we're going to come back and do a message on this. And so we're stopping now this week to go a little more in depth here, because this is such a hot-button topic in, in our day. We have much need of clarity here. But I said we're doing something dangerous um, and what I mean is, is because in, in focusing on this issue, it would be really easy to make the same mistake that our culture does, just on the other end of the spectrum, and act like sex is the center. You know, because you know, we see all the ways that our culture does this, uh, but you know, to be fair, the evangelical response to our culture's sex obsession often falls right into the same uh, the, this, the same trap because we, ex- we, we accept the premise that sex is the center. And so, you know, your experience growing up in church, you know, perhaps, you know, an evangelical purity culture where it seemed like the issue of sex is just the sum total of being, of discipleship, or whether you find in, in your small groups that every conversation of accountability and discipleship is just about lust and pornography. Like, we can, we can fall into the same trap here and start acting like sex is the center, but it's not. Jesus is the center. And so I, I don't want to do that today. I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to walk a fine line. I want to avoid that error even as we focus on this issue. And so, so please don't hear anything that I say today as elevating the issue of sex or homosexuality above other issues or positioning this topic at the center of discipleship and mission. Sex is not the center. Jesus is. And then maybe one, one last note before we, before we dive in. Uh, so there are a lot of practical challenges and questions about this issue because we live in a culture that, that has some very, very different ideas about this issue than, the Bible, than what the Bible says. And so there's lots of practical questions that are, will probably start arising in your minds even as, as we're looking at God's word. And so how to be faithful to what God's word says and at the same time faithful to represent the heart of God who saves, uh, that, that really quickly gets complicated. And so what I really encourage you to do is if you have questions, you want to know more about this topic, uh, stick around after the service because this month, this month we're doing our Grace at the Table discussion, which we've been doing every month, kind of diving into some issues, talking about them, and we're tackling this issue, like the practical questions around around homosexuality and how to interact with that in our, in our culture with friends and family and loved ones. And so, so if you have questions about that, even during the message, as, uh, you know, as I'm talking, you can text, text your questions anonymously to, to that number, 
2611, and hopefully we'll be able to dialogue about them after the service. So, if we don't exist for sex, then what do we exist for? So to, to find that out, we have to go, we have to, go to the beginning. We have, we have to go to, to, to Genesis to see what, what, what's this all for. And in Genesis, we find you know, the first word on, on human beings, on what we're here for, what we're about, who we are. It's Genesis 1.27 when it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we, we find here that human beings are made different than everything else, made in the image of God, which meant, means we're made to represent God, to extend the blessing of his reign and carry the blessing of his presence to the ends of the earth. Like this, this is what you're for. This is why you exist. And you can see right here at the beginning that sexuality is a part of that. The male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2, as, that, as the story unfolds and we see God's design for the world, we see male and female coming together in the institution of marriage. God sets this up in the garden. The man holds fast to his wife. They'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and not ashamed. And so, right here from the beginning... This, this part of human identity, male, female, sex, marriage, it is important. So it's un, it's, maybe it's understandable that, that our, our world keeps shifting this to the center, because it is important. But it's not the center. God is. We're made in the image of God, and there's something about male and female and this marriage that that. that points back to that, but the male-female stuff isn't the center. God is the center. And so the ultimate purpose of sexuality, of maleness and femaleness and marriage and sex, the ultimate purpose of those is not found in and of themselves, but it's found in, in the God whose image we bear. And the, you know, there, there's lots of purposes of this. From, like the cicadas, making babies filling the earth and you know, uh, multiplying and all, and all of that. But the ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of male and female and why we exist like this is found in, in God. And John Piper, uh, in, uh, it was 15 years ago, had this, this amazing Desire in God conference called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And here, here's one thing that he said in one of those, one of those messages. He said, God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. That's quite a statement. Quite, quite a statement. What, what, what Piper is claiming, what, and what I think we'll be able to see even as we start to look at some of these texts, is that the very purpose, the, the most foundational, ultimate reason for male and female, for sexuality, for, for us as human beings being made this way, is that when God talks about his 
his love, what it means to have relationship with him, that there would be language that could capture an echo of that. And so that when we walk away from him, there would be language to capture just an echo of the horror of what that means. That's Jesus at the center, that the whole purpose of that is just so that that God would have a way to talk about his love for us. And that doesn't mean, of course, that God's love for us is at all in any way sexual. More, it's the other way around. It's that sex is the metaphor. Sex is the, is the image. Sex is the dim echo of the reality. And so God created this echo just so he'd have a way to, to, to talk about his love for us. So we are sexual beings created with sexual desire and potential for sexual pleasure so that there would be language to describe what God's faithfulness to us looks like and what our faithlessness to him looks like. And you can see this all over the Bible, from from the relationship between Christ and the church being described as a marriage to one of my favorite places. I just want to show this to you quickly. Um, Ezekiel 16, a really, really powerful, vivid and graphic chapter Uh, I'd encourage you to go and read this whole chapter. There are just riches here as God describes his relationship with faithless Israel, his people who have walked away from him. And he uses this language. So what Piper is saying is, is the whole reason this exists is so that God can talk like this. God says to his faithless people, he says, when I passed by you, he says, you you were cast out as as an infant, you were abandoned And I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. This is the picture of grace, of God walking by us in our mess and our filth, and he says, be alive. And he says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And then some graphic language. This is the Bible, folks. It says, your breasts were formed. Your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw, behold, you were at the age for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God. You became mine. And I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil, I clothed you, I adorned you. He goes on, I gave you gold and silver, jewels. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth because of your beauty. It's, it's this, this vivid, graphic, sexual language to describe God's rescuing love. So that, we might, so that something might move from our head to our hearts and, and be shocked and wake up to see this, this is God's love. He, him saying, I, I loved you like this. When you were nothing, I took you, I made you mine. I entered into relationship with you. I clothed you. I made you beautiful. And then he says, but... You trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, and you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. And he's not talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about unfaithfulness to the 
God who, who called them. This, this is vivid language to talk about idolatry. He says, you took some of your garments that I, that I gave you and you made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been or ever shall be. You took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you and you made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. Graphic language. What Piper is saying is, look at this. The reason that we are that God created us as sexual beings is so that we would know what it means to walk away from Him and what His love means. Go read this whole chapter because it, it goes on. It describes all of the faithlessness of Israel, and then just at, at the end. You know, can't, can't preach the whole sermon. We should just preach a, a series on Ezekiel 13, 16 sometime. Because at the end, after all of Israel's faithfulness, after all of her prostitution and idolatry, God says, but I remember my covenant with you, and I will rescue you, and I will pay for everything you've done. It's like, what a picture of grace. But this... This relationship with God and the language used to describe it, this is why he has made us the way we are. And so uh, obviously, obviously, since the good old days of Genesis 1.27, things have gone terribly wrong. And this male-female marriage, nakedness, not ashamed, this, this picture of, of self-giving, faithful covenant love that God designed sexuality to be has broken catastrophically along with everything else. Like we were just saying, like, do you feel the world is broken? Yes. Because with the breaking of the of relationship with the God who made us, all of our other loves have become disordered. And our sexuality, too, has become disordered. See, I, I, I'm ruined from birth, from, from before I was born. I'm now wired down to my DNA with sinful desires and sinful tendencies. That, that, that's my default. That, that's what comes naturally to me. You know, the, the great moral philosopher, uh, Lady Gaga, <laughs> claims, she claims, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. But it's actually the opposite. I'm on the wrong track, baby. I was born this way. That, that's the Bible's bad news of the universal human condition, that you and I were born on the wrong track, that what comes naturally to us is sin and death. And so this, too, is the Bible's diagnosis of our sexuality, that it has become disconnected from its ultimate purpose, and so our sexuality is disordered, every one of us. And so rather than God's created design of sex being the expression of self-giving covenant love between husband and wife, and thus a glimpse of God's self-giving covenant love for his people, now, now it's all wrong. And the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is simply this, is that this is one of the expressions of disordered fallen sexuality in our world. And so I want to walk through 
the passages of Scripture that talk about this issue. There, there aren't that many of them, uh, but I, I think we're going to see this with Christ at the center and his purposes for sexuality and all, and all of reality centered on him. And we have fallen away from him, broken that. Everything about us gets twisted up, including our sexuality, that this is the context into which the, what the Bible says about homosexuality makes sense. So we can start with Romans 1. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans 1. I'm going to put this on, this, on the, the page, uh, up on the screen. And it's verse, verse 26 and 7 in particular. But what we're going to see with all these passages, we've got to back up to context. Because the context is what's important here. And so Romans 1 Paul's starting his, his, his great epistle to the church in Rome, laying out the glories of the gospel, and he starts with the bad news of the human condition. So I just want, I want to read this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is this, The universal human condition is that the wrath of God, the judgment of God is aimed at us because because we are unrighteous, we are ungodly, we, have, we are on the run from him and his purposes for our lives. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, so we, are without excuse. God's power and nature clearly on display, written in the stars and on our hearts, and we know. And so Paul says, we're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, idolatry. This, this is the terrible exchange. This is what has gone so catastrophically wrong in our lives and in our world. This, this is what's wrong with us. This is what's wrong with the world. It's we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the one at the center, the one whom all life is about, whom we were made to know and love and be in relationship with, and we have traded him for stuff. Paul says for images, for idols, for created things. Images, most, and most especially the image in the mirror. We have swapped the creator for the creation. The sun at the center of the solar system. It's as if you, like, you took the sun with its massive gravity that holds everything together and you put you know, a little asteroid or a little tiny planet there in the center. Everything spins out of control. And what's left now is this emptiness at the center that can never ever be filled. Blaise Pascal, um, who's an actual moral philosopher, uh, Blaise Pascal, he, he writes this. He says, There was once in man a true happiness, of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace. 
which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in the things present. It's like more, more, I want more. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. And this is our human condition. We have made this terrible exchange. This terrible exchange is now wired into us since the fall. And we exchange. We swap God for stuff. We swap him for images. And I said earlier that sex and sexuality is a dim picture of God's love for us. So what do we do? We swap him for the picture. And so what comes next in Romans is God's response. What is, God, what is God's judgment on the world for having done this? And the terrible and haunting reality of the rest of Romans 1 is that God's judgment against the sinful world is expressed in him giving us what we want. Which might sound nice. But when there's only emptiness apart from him, God giving us what we want is the, is the worst possible judgment. We have exchanged the glory of God for created things, for images, and so God hands us over to our desires. I'm going I'm to keep reading. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll come back and look in particular at this issue of homosexuality, which we'll see in this text. It says, Therefore, because we have made this exchange, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is, this is a bleak assessment of the human condition, a bleak assessment. And what we see here is this, what may be surprising, it's that our desire to sin and our enslavement to sin is, in fact, the judgment of God. It's not just, it's not just that, we're, that we're slaves to sin and God judges us for that, but it's God in his judgment on the world hands us over to those desires and says, you want it, take it. And so this is God's corporate judgment on the world. 
And, it's, and we see, in, in, as Paul lays it out, there's this threefold handing over. It's the, it's the giving over to dishonoring our bodies, dishonorable passions, debased minds. And now, uh, it's, uh, some clarification here to, to help, again, make sure that we're tracking this, threading the needle correctly here. Romans 1, as it lays out God's judgment... This, this isn't so much a progression from like bad to worse. So it's not that. <laughs> don't take the picture, don't take the picture quite yet, because it's not that. It's not what, what, Paul, what Paul is saying here is it's, he's not saying that, well, if you exchange the glory of God, then God gives you over to dishonoring your bodies and then gives you over to dishonoring your passions and then at last gives you over to a debased mind. It's not, it's not so much a circle circling the drain of moral depravity. And, and you can see that even in, in the text itself because you know, the, the, end, the end result here is, is not something like homosexuality. The end result is diso- disobeying your parents. Teens. That that's, that, that, and so it's not, this is not a progression so much. And of course, in one sense, there is sort of a progression. The more you give yourself to sin, the more you find yourself given over to it, and you will go down the drain. But this is a, a, a better way of, of looking at this. It's the next slide. It's that rather this is a threefold judgment. That this is how God judges the world. And this is, this is how God has handed us over. That we have exchanged the glory of God. And so God has given the world over to dishonoring our bodies, dishonorable passions, and debased minds. This is the condition that we are now in. And the reason, the reason that homosexuality is singled out here... This, this again. This is an, also an insight from, um, from from Piper's book, "Sex and the Supremacy of Christ," which I would highly recommend. Um, the reason homosexuality is singled out here is because in this handing over, this particular sin, as Paul thinks about this exchange, this particular sin functions as a vivid illustration of our original trade. It's that we have exchanged what we were made for for something that looks like me. Do, do, do you see that? That's the original exchange at the, at the root of everything wrong in me and in the world that the, the judgment of God comes on is that I have exchanged what I was made for, the glory of God, for stuff that looks like me. And so as Paul says, lays out how God gives us over to that, he says, hey, you know one, one thing that that judgment looks like when God says, okay, is that he looses the reins on our broken sexuality and we give ourselves instead of to what we were made for, to one who looks like me. If all of sex and sexuality is to function as a metaphor, so too does God's judgment on our sexuality. It's all a metaphor for God's, for, for what we have exchanged, the glory of God. And when he says, and he says here, if you look, uh, he says you know, that men and women, this is an interesting phrase here, 
gave up natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's an important phrase to understand here. Because uh, there's actually a lot of, I think, misunderstanding on both sides of, of this issue. Because on the one hand, some more like liberal scholars who try to massage the text and mean something a little bit more palatable to our modern sensibilities, they, they look, they'll, they'll look at this and they'll say, and you, so you might have heard this argument before, they'll say, ah, see, Paul, what Paul's referring to here is innate sexual orientation. And he's saying, don't act against that. And so, so what they say is, if I, a heterosexual by nature, engage in homosexual acts, that's contrary to nature. And they say, and so too, if I'm a homosexual by nature and engage in heterosexual acts, that's contrary to nature. That's, that's sort of the argument of trying to take this text and make it a little bit more palatable to our modern ears. But that's, that's not what Paul is, is talking about here. Uh, because, because contrary to nature doesn't just mean different than my desires. We're going to see that in a minute. Because that's, this is the error on one side, to try to change this into Paul saying something he's not. On the other hand, though, the other, the other side is can often use this verse as sort of a proof text to, see, to say, ah, see, being gay is a choice. Because it's contrary to nature. And, and while, of course, homosexual action is a choice, just like heterosexual action, uh, that too, it actually misses the point of what Paul's saying here. Pa- Paul, is not, Paul is not commenting on the origins of homosexuality in an ind- individual. It's like, are you born this way? Did you choose this? Paul is not addressing that. That's sort of a false dichotomy in some ways. Uh, and it's actually, and actually, that question, bigger than homosexuality, that question of was I born this way or did I choose it, is actually irrelevant to the Bible's description of morality. Because when Paul says that homosexual activity is contrary to nature, what he means is contrary to God's created design for our sexuality. Contrary to God's created design. And so in the same way, you could, you could say that Everything in this list and all of idolatry, the exchanging the creator for creation, that it's all contrary to nature. Because in fact, that's, the, that's exactly what he says earlier. That, that's the point of what he says earlier when he says, everyone knows the truth about God. It's written across creation. You were made to know and prize the glory of God, and yet you trade it off anyway. That's contrary to nature. That's against the, what you were designed for. We weren't meant to trade the glory of God for images. We weren't designed to do that. And yet, in our fallenness, that contrary to nature exchange is what comes naturally. That, let me say that again. That is the threading of the needle here of all biblical ethics. That contrary to nature exchange is exactly what comes naturally to us. In fact, the, fact, the very fact that it is contrary, that, that, that what's contrary to nature comes naturally, that is in fact the judgment. That God giving us over to all of the ways that we violate his design for us. And so homosexuality here functions as an illustration of that whole terrible exchange. And so, just as contrary to nature 
is true of that whole exchange. So the consequences he mentions here, that they received in themselves the due penalty for their error, that's true of the whole exchange too. That can be said of homosexuality and every other sin on this list, that trading the glory of the creator for creation leads to ruin. It always leads to ruin. If not in this life, then the next. Trading the creator for the creation is ruinous. And every unsatisfied desire, once we make that swap, every unsatisfied desire leads us further and further in a quest to fill the emptiness, deeper and deeper into what really can be described as that downward spiral. It's what C.S. Lewis, uh, in the Screwtape Letters, he called an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's what the exchange gives us. And day by day, as we, even those of us who follow Jesus, exchange the glory of God for stuff and prefer things to him, what we're doing is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And we receive in ourselves the due penalty for that error, that terrible trade lived out all of our brokenness and dysfunction and idolatry and sin every day. Sober, the sober weight. When we sang that song, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel it? And it's a, it's a guilty brokenness. Like we have broken it. This is our fault, and we are under judgment because of it. Which is why I'm so glad that there is one who is worthy. Right? That there is one who is whole. There's one who is worthy to f- and is, in fact, making all things new. That that's our hope. But let's, let's keep going here. This, that's Romans 1. The other ones are going to go a little bit more, more quickly. Leviticus. Rewind in your Bible to the book of Leviticus. It's the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. Leviticus 18, in particular verse 22, and then later chapter 20, verse 13, kind of says the same thing. So real quick, the purpose of Leviticus is that God's people, God has called his people to himself And God's people must be wholly set apart, distinct, because Yahweh, their God, is wholly set apart, distinct, and they belong to him now. And so so Leviticus sets up in the community of God's people that God is rebuilding Eden. He's relaunching his purposes for humanity. He's going to be present with his people in the promised land. He's going to make everything new here and so they've got some rules to follow, to act out what that looks like. And so there's so, so Leviticus sets up laws to sort of hold back the curse and the fall in the form of these purity laws. There's ritual purity, that they're in the presence of the Lord of life, and so they must be uncontaminated from the detritus of death, from blood and bodily fluids and decay. They have to be separate from that because they're in the presence of life. And there's, 
social purity, that their whole community is supposed to be radically distinct from the nations around them, supposed to embody this radical love your neighbor ethic as the foundation of all their laws. And there's laws about sexual purity here, that their relationships with one another are not to be modeled on the brokenness and idolatry all around them, but on God's created design in Genesis 2. And so that's what Leviticus 18 is about. It's about sexual purity. And God says to them, you're distinct from the nations around you. He says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. They shall, you shall not do as they do in America. This is what he says to all of, God, all of God's people. He says this to all of his people throughout all of time. Don't, don't do it like they do where you live. And there's this long litany as, as the laws tend, as the Mosaic law can tend to be. He says, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover his nakedness. And then goes on and lists like every possible permutation of that. And then says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech as burnt offerings. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. He goes on, talks about more, and he says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So there's that verse 22. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That word abomination... Is also some strong language. It means simply means detestable to God. That's what the word means. It's often used throughout the law to describe the pagan practices around Israel. And so Deuteronomy seven twenty six says that idols are an abomination to God. That that exchange of the glory of God for images. God says that's an abomination. Deuteronomy 12.31 says the religious practices of the pagan nations around them are an abomination. Deuteronomy 17.1 says bringing a blemished offering to God is an abomination. Deuteronomy 24.4 says that unbiblical divorce is an abomination. Deuteronomy 25.16 says that dishonesty in your business dealings is an abomination. What God is saying in all these things, he says, I hate this. It grieves me. This is detestable to me. It's like a stench in my nostrils. It is the stench of death when I have called you to life. So some some things to, to note here quickly. So this is Leviticus, the Old Testament law. This is the same the same book of the Bible where we're told not to eat bacon. Praise God for the new covenant, right? <laughs> However, one thing that's really clear in the, as the Bible progresses in the story of redemption, we get to Jesus inaugurating a new covenant, is that the sexual ethics of the old covenant carry over into the new covenant for God's people. Sexual purity as a distinction for God's people is still, is still God's will for us today. And so you see that in places like on the next slide, like Ephesians 5, he says, sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. 1 Corinthians 5, we've seen this recently this spring, where Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world 
or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Do you notice that, that the Bible cannot talk about homosexuality without expanding the list to talk about other sins? He says, since then you would need to go out of the world. <laughs> he says, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. He says that, that purity, that moral purity of God's people is still, is still God's will for his people today. And so just because it's in Leviticus doesn't mean you can cut that book out of your Bible. Leviticus, Le- Leviticus is about Jesus, about God's will for our lives, what God has done for his people. The next thing to see, next point here for Leviticus, is this, is this is important to point out, is that God judges unbelieving nations for sexual immorality. You can see that in Leviticus 18 and in 1 Corinthians 6. You can see he says, don't make yourself unclean by any of these things because this is why I have brought judgment on these nations. And what Paul says simply in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, he says I, have no, I have no business judging outsiders because God judges those on the outside. God judges those on the outside. And so God judges the nations for the brokenness of our, of our sexuality and all of the ways that that brokenness is expressed in idolatry and sin and evil and all the detestable and abominable practices that Leviticus and the, and the New Testament talk about. God judged the Canaanites for, among other things, their sexual immorality. God will judge America for, among other things, for our sexual immorality. But note this, see this clearly. The mission of God's people isn't to get the nations to clean up their act. The mission of God's people is to embody an entirely different ethic and call people out of darkness into life. That's why Paul says so strenuously in that 1 Corinthians 5, he says, when I told you not to associate with sexual immoral people, I didn't at all mean the world because that's your mission. That's who you're supposed to go to. And so now we arrive, let's skip back into the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, this, is, this is the other, uh, the other place now. The last one we'll arrive at is 1 Corinthians 6, kind of back where we started. But 1 Timothy 1, the context here is that Paul is giving Timothy, a young pastor, some advice because he's having a difficult time in his church. And one of the, one of the problems going on in this church is that some teachers in the church are misusing that Mosaic law. They're misusing Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and, and that Mosaic law. And so he says... He says this says in 1 Timothy, he says, certain people, by swerving from, from these, and he talks about this, these, core, these core doctrines, the gospel, this, this, this way of thinking about the new covenant, he says, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So he says so that's the problem that he's addressing that they're misusing the law. 
And the question is, the difficult question when you come to texts like that is, well, how are they misusing the law? Paul never actually defines it for us. He never defines exactly what the problem is. But probably the error in view here is that these teachers were taking the Mosaic law and saying that obedience to this law is how you get right with God or how you stay right with God. In other words, they were saying that either, either this law is that all the unbelievers have to follow this law, and that's how you get in. Or they were saying following this law is how you stay in the covenant of God's people. You've you got to follow all the rules. No bacon for you. No bacon for you, Keith. <laughs> Keith, I have good news. That is a false gospel. <laughs> and so, it's, so pro- that's probably what was going on in this church, this the teachers are saying, clean up your act, obey Leviticus 18.22, stop eating bacon, it'll go well for you. It's a false gospel. And the way Paul addresses it is really interesting. He says this. He says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We know the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane." For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, that's the same two words we saw in 1 Corinthians describing both passive and active participants in all homosexual activities, the technical first century term for that in the Greek. Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glory, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. He says, Paul says, the law is for lawbreakers. And now this is interesting because we've, we've seen clearly that doesn't mean that the law is for unbelievers in the sense that we're supposed to expect unbelievers to conform to God's moral standards. That's not what he means. When he says the law is for lawbreakers, he means that the law stands as a witness of judgment. Paul in Romans 3 says that the Mosaic law was given to God's people to Israel so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And Romans 1 says that whole world, those who do such things deserve to die and you do such things. And so the law in its witness of judgment, when Paul says the purpose of law is for lawbreakers, purpose is to drive us to Christ, to drive us to Christ as the one who dies in our place, that those who deserve such things deserve to die, Romans 1 says, and look to the cross where the judgment of God fell not on you, but on the Savior who stood in your place and died for you, the one who bears our sin and bears our guilt and bears our brokenness, bears our idolatry and rebellion. That's why what comes next in 1 Timothy is this is one of my favorite gospel declarations. Jesus' perfect patience in saving sinners. As Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Paul could never, ever get over the grace lavished on him. He says, but I received mercy 
because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the worst, first in line. Paul's like, that's me. And he says, but I received mercy so that in me, as the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. So we would see what grace looks like. So we'd see what the love of God looks like, rescuing sinners. And that brings us back to 1 Corinthians 6. Come full circle. 1 Corinthians 6. We saw last week, Paul says, Don't you know the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God? He lists all those things, and homosexuality is in there, and this amazing phrase, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. This, this church is full of people who have been rescued from their sin and are now fighting to follow Jesus. This church is full of people who by grace alone are fighting all those desires that are contrary to nature and yet come so naturally, don't they? This church is full of heterosexual sinners fighting against lust and committing themselves day in and day out to faithfulness to their spouses. This church, praise God, is full of teenagers who are really wrestling with that whole disobedient to parents thing in Romans 1.30 and yet are saying, I want to obey Jesus. And praise God, this church is full of homosexual sinners. There are homosexual sinners among us who are daily counting the cost and picking up their crosses and saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Because this is what Paul says here when he says, such were some of you. This is not your identity anymore. This is not who you are anymore because Jesus has exchanged places with you. And that great exchange which ruined you and ruined the world, Jesus trades back. And he has come to be the sun at the center of your solar system. He has come to displace every counterfeit identity that says, I'll be the center of your life. I'll be who you are. Every one of those identities leads to ruin. But Jesus says, I have come to make you mine so that I can be the center. And now, little by little, we're all, fight, we're all working this out to get the planets of our life back into alignment around his glory. If I could have the, the worship team come forward. See, this, this is why you exist. Not for sex, or any other created thing that we seek to put in the middle. But Jesus, you exist to know and be known by the God of the universe. And this God sent his son for you so he, so he could take back your exchange. So church... What have you traded him for? What 
what have, what, what every single one of us has made that terrible exchange. What have you pawned off the God of the universe for? For some of us, it might be that issue of sex and sexuality. It might be the, de- the desires that we have to, to run after them. It might be to find our identity and meaning and purpose there. Or it might be in any one of these other things in the list we give ourselves to. Church, what have you traded Jesus for? So I, I'd like us to do something. As, as, we, as we close, we're, we're going to sing this song immeasurably more. And the, the chorus, I think, simply says, there, there is nothing greater than your love. You are more than we can imagine. And I'd invite you, as as we sing, as we pray, I want to invite you to consider this question. What have you traded for Jesus? Thinking that somehow you can get more out of this than out of him. What does that look like in your life? What are the ways that you have wandered from grace? What are the ways that you are on the run from his will for your life? And right now, I, I believe that God is calling us. I know, I know he's calling me. Because this, this hit me like a Holy Spirit two by four as I was working on this message. God is calling some of us, probably all of us, but he's calling us to say, Jesus, I want to want you more. I want you to be the center. I want you to be the sun. I, I, I'm sorry for the exchange. Take it back. Because this is what Jesus came to do. He came to take it back. And as we sing, if that's your prayer, if that's your desire, and you say, I, I want uh, these, these sins that I am caught in and I can't get free, these loves that feel so much better to me than Jesus, I, I want to be free of them. I want Jesus. I want to want Jesus. As we're singing, I would invite you to come forward here just as a, step, as a step of faith, as an act of faith, of, of a declaration of saying, I want to turn around a new direction. I don't want to make this the center. Lord, help me. So worship team, you can come. We can, we can start to sing. And if that's your desire, that's your heart, I'd invite you to, to join me here at the front as we recommit our lives to Jesus at the center. Let's sing.